Um, in the background of forgiveness is uh, the turning your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, you have the story that's very familiar, and especially for young people, because young people years ago had uh, had a, a song did about Zacchaeus. And in this particular case, Luke chapter 19, you have a story about this fellow. Let's read it. It's in chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was a chief among the publicans, and he was rich. I remind you of two or three things just on that particular point. First off, that uh, Zacchaeus was chief among the publicans, and uh, you need to know that the publicans were a hated group of people because they were tax collectors under the Roman government, and so they were tax gatherers. Uh, their job was to go out and get from people X amount of dollars for taxes and turn it over to the Roman government. So for that reason, Zacchaeus in this case, it's a name that is known among the Jewish people. So we take it that he's a Jewish fellow and uh, he would have been seen as a traitor to the Jewish community. They would have said to themselves, why would you ever take a job where you had to gouge your own people to get money to both survive and to work with the Roman government. That's the point they would make. And it says he was chief among the publicans, which indicates he'd probably be over them. He was in charge of them. He was responsible for them. And then it also says he was rich. Well, in that, we'll come back to the ideal of being rich. But down through the verses, verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was, could not for the press. That's uh, the vast number of people. It doesn't mean that CBS, NBC, and ABC were there. It doesn't mean that because he was little or small of stature. In verse 4, he ran before, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. A sycamore tree is something we know something about, but it's given that in uh, the day in which this text was written, it really is considered to be a low-hanging fig tree, and that's why you could climb on it. In fact, it was a climbing tree. That's what people sometimes referred to them as, to see him, for he was to pass that way. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. We'll leave it with there. The rest of the story is uh, the, the positive part of it, the joyful part of it. But enough said to get you uh, in touch with who Zacchaeus is and uh, let you know that um, uh, it's possible for, as in his case, a man of his caliber, which being a publican who is a hated fellow and also being rich, can indeed get right with God and one day be accepted with God, and go to heaven, not on his own merit, but on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in this case came directly in touch with, with Zacchaeus. In this passage of Scripture, it's interesting that um, verse 1 talks about Jericho. We mentioned this last time, and it is a, a vital part of this whole story, is that Jericho was a cursed city. Uh, the Old Testament indicates that uh, because of their behavior and what they did, uh, there was a curse brought upon it. And in so doing, uh, people were not urged to live there. Yea, verily, they were urged to leave there. And the consequence of that is Jesus Christ never spent any time in Jericho. Now, whether or not he didn't spend time there simply because it was an accursed city, um, I don't know what his reasoning was. It was also a resort city uh, where the palm trees, in fact, it was called the city of palm trees. Uh, so people went there to rest and relax and enjoy themselves. 
So I don't know if it was that reason or if it was because it was a curse, but one thing is for sure, there were some people in this city who were cursed on the sense and the basis of they were cursed by their sin. Let me show you a passage that you should remember and go along with this. Look in your Bible, if you have it before you, to Galatians, Galatians chapter number 3, and look at verse number 10. Galatians chapter number 3 and verse number 10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And it says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Uh, We'll read the other two verses in a moment, but out of verse number 10, the fundamental point that is made here If you were claiming that you were going to get to go to heaven based on you keeping the law, this verse of Scripture uses the word continueth. That means that you can't miss a beat. It's just like James said. James says if a man uh, tries to keep the law and he offends in one point, just one point, he just makes one mistake, James says he's guilty of all of it. So Paul comes back and writes, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That is, all the things in the book of the law that says you must do and you don't do them, then the fact of the matter is you're cursed of God. Cursed is every man who does not keep all of the law. Not one of the Ten Commandments. All of the Ten Commandments. All that's written in the Scriptures. Cursed is this man. Well, to hear a Jew say that, he'd be trying very hard to keep all the Ten Commandments and all the other little laws that were abounding to it. And in him to hear this, this would be devastating. Verse number 11, though, says of Galatians 3, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. It's talking about specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take away your curse from not being able to keep all the law. He became a curse for us. The curse was on you and the curse was on me and the curse was on Zacchaeus. The curse was on the people of Jericho. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, died for our sin. And this verse says he became a curse for us so that you and I could walk free and he'd be condemned to death. So the fact of the matter is that may be part of the context of, of chapter 19 of Book of Luke, where we have the story of Jesus going, entered into and passed through Jericho. Didn't spend time there. And he comes to meet this guy, uh, Zacchaeus. I want to call your attention to a couple of things I didn't cover the last time we were together last week. So let me go back a bit and and do that. It's been said, and I think it's correct, that uh, characteristic of Dr. Luke, and it was a Dr. Luke who wrote the book of Luke. It bears his name. Uh, He... uh, He points out in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, he points out incidents showing the Lord Jesus Christ as a friend to the people who are outcast. 
people who would not be normally accepted in the inner circle of a society, Luke, for whatever reason, evidently had a compassionate heart of his own own life, and somehow it seems Dr. Luke just gravitated to tell the stories that Jesus Christ cared about people who other people would not care for. And I believe that's why Zacchaeus gets into the story. I'll point out a couple of things. One, it's Luke, Dr. Luke and his gospel that gave us the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. It was Dr. Luke who gives us a story about the publican praying on a street corner and a Pharisee praying over here. And this Pharisee was arrogant about this poor publican. And thank God that he was not like that dumb, stupid, ignorant, wicked, evil publican. Luke wrote that down. And Luke also wrote down that that there was publicans when Jesus Christ spoke. he He recorded in his gospel that all the publicans came to hear him. So it's almost as if Luke was always on the lookout for who it is that's associating with Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is associating with. So it seems very clear that Luke had a, a very soft heart for the Lord's ministry to work and deal with people. Another thing about Dr. Luke, and when I read this week, I was noting some of these in the Bible, and the bad news is my Bibles are almost all marked up, so I can't hardly distinguish them from one or the other, even though I use different color ink. I still can't find all of them, but I did write them down. And here's an interesting thing. Dr. Luke recorded more than any of the others the things concerning the healing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Here are the chapters. We won't turn to them for the sake of time, but uh, he records uh, several of the events, and I'm sure there's some that are not specifically pulled out, but here are the ones about healing that Dr. Luke referred to. There's one in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 17, and chapter 22. In every single one of them, there is a story about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in touch with somebody who needed healing, and the Lord Jesus Christ provided it. Dr. Luke just seemed to be the kind of guy who wants to show you the Lord Jesus Christ fixes people's lives, whether they're the outcast of society and they need a touch spiritually from it, or whether they're physically unable to do anything, and he comes in and he touches and he heals them. One thing in this story in chapter 19 of Luke Luke about uh, Zacchaeus, uh, and and you can catch this when you read through the text, and that is very simply, you have two seeking people in this story, two seeking people. Well, the first one of them is obvious, Uh, would be who? What's the guy's name? I'm deaf in this ear and can't see out of this. Can you get a little louder? Zacchaeus. That's right. Zacchaeus is the guy who ran ahead of the press and climbed up in a sycamore tree. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first seeker. But the last verse in the text that we'd read last week in Luke 19, verse number 10, the other seeker, and who's that? Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. So in verse number 2, you have the seeker, Zacchaeus. In verse number 10, you have the seeker, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke was right on target in that uh, Luke would make the point that gravitatedly pulled toward people who needed him in one way or the other, as in the case with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus didn't need healing. 
Uh, he didn't have and ha- did not have a financial crisis. Uh, he did not have an emotional breakdown. He didn't have any of that. This guy was really sitting on the top of the world. I mean, he had money. Bible says so. He was rich. He was over a bunch of other publicans. This guy was, he was really heading down success road. But the Lord came to him. Now think about it. Zacchaeus couldn't see the Lord Jesus Christ for the press, the vast number of people. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ came right to the tree where Zacchaeus was and looked up in it and called him by his name. There's no evidence that Zacchaeus was a born-again believing Jew at that point. So it means that Jesus Christ knew who Zacchaeus was without an introduction. May I say to you that he, uh, I'm sure the Lord knows who you and I are. If you've never been saved by the grace of God, I believe he knows who you are. I believe he looks at you the way we were Zacchaeus, the way Dr. Luke would look at it and say, here's a person that is lost, does not know Christ, they're religious, they have a religious background, they have... They, have, they carry Bibles. They, they speak religious things. They ask people to pray for them when they have needs. All the religious stuff, but they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they would say that in this case, when Zacchaeus was up that tree, he went up a sinner and he came down a sinner. That's what folks would say. Now, where exactly that process took place, we don't know. But there's one thing for sure. Next week we'll get into the details of why we would even think that there was a change in his life and how we would perceive that he was indeed a Bible-believing Christian. There's something else to note here. When you have a combination of a sinner, as in the case with Zacchaeus, seeking the Savior, and you have the Savior seeking a sinner, let me tell you, there will be a meeting. There will be a meeting. There will be a meeting. You find me a person who's seeking to get right with God, I can introduce you to a Savior who's seeking that person to save them and change them. And the Bible is very clear about that. You find me someone like Zacchaeus seeking to know the Lord. And and for those of us who've already met the Lord, he found us, he saved us, he's changed us. Uh, There's this other thing is you come to know the Lord as a believer, uh, you want to come to know him better. And as you come to know him better, we sang in Sunday school of a song, More, uh, I think, More About Thee. More, I believe that's the more song. About Jesus. More About Jesus. And, and the thing about that is, as a Christian, I want to know more about him. I want to know him better. I want to understand him better. I want, I want to know everything I can know about him. Well, the thing about that is, you can. And he will help you to know him better. Just like when you desire to know him because of what he said, he spoke to your heart through his word and by his spirit, and he drew you to himself. He'll do the same drawing on a spiritual level to get you to where you desire to be. By the way, I personally believe everybody in this room is exactly where they want to be on a spiritual basis. If we want to know him better, uh, we'll get to know him better. It's just like this. If I said to you... uh, there's food in the basement. I mean the best of the best kind of food. And when the service is dismissed, if you're hungry, you're, you're welcome to go get it all. Don't leave anything for the dogs. We're going to get rid of all of it. So you go down and just go and feast out. Now, if you were really hungry, 
Uh, the fact of the matter is you would get down there in a hurry, so you might get first dibs, or if you're more, uh, you know, you might be a laid-back person. You might be a bit more passive, and you just get in line and go through and get what you could and so on. But there's one thing for sure. If you were really hungry, you would go down there. If you really want to know the Lord, you can get to know him better. Or it'll cost you something. You know, he's not in the mood. He's not like one of those people when people pray. You know, they uh, we call it hit and run. It's when you get down to pray and you knock on the door of heaven. And the Lord answers and says, what well, I can do for you? Say, hey, look, I'm in a hurry. i got 20 minutes, and here's what I need. And you give him a list of 50 things. That's not going to happen. Not the way it works. You wouldn't do any. You wouldn't even dare do that to a loved one, and say to them, I, "I have this need." You wouldn't rush in and tell them the need. You'd sit down, you'd talk with them a bit, and begin to explain where you are and what's going on in your life. And on the basis of that, then you might have a request and say, "Could you help us with this? Could you be? A, could you assist me in this problem?" Some people run to the Lord and they want to go in real quick, jump all their requests, and then walk away. That's not how you get to know the Lord better. And I'm not so sure, but why that's a lot of times the reason why we don't get anything from him. We rush into his presence. We don't even get our own hearts ready to talk with him and to meet with a holy God of the universe. He's so holy that he can't even look upon sin. And we rush in like everything's hunky-dory and he's going to be just fine with us. And first thing we ought to do is what the Bible teaches us to do, and that is we ought to make sure that we're clean and we have confessed all known sin. We do it every time we take communion. We urge everybody to make sure that you're ready to receive communion. And if you're not, you drink the cup unworthily or you eat the bread unworthily, there's a condemnation to that. And I'm not surprised. I think the same kind of attitude prevails when we try to rush into God's presence because we have a need and we do not take into account if we're His children... We ought to have a relationship with, that would urge upon us that we take time. We take time to be with the Lord. The one thing that you can't purchase, you can purchase everything else. You can, you can purchase candles and light them. You can, you, can, uh, you can purchase prayer mats and pray on them. You can, you can just do all kinds of stuff. But there's one thing you cannot purchase that he wants. That he wants. And that's your time. He wants his children to come to him, bow their hearts and their heads, talk with him, communicate with him. Husbands don't know their wives because sometimes husbands and wives don't talk. Too busy, got too much going. Will you be surprised when the marriage breaks up? You shouldn't be. That's how marriages break up because there's no communication. There's no bonding. There's no sustenance in that thing. Why would you be surprised when you have somebody who's a professing Christian but does not spend any time with the Lord personally, not, not corporately, personally, privately, and give you your time? Why should we be surprised when they drop out of church, they drop off the scene regarding spiritual matters, they eventually don't read their Bible, they don't spend any time in prayer anymore, and they don't share the gospel with anybody dying in their family going to a devil's hell. They don't do all that. Why would we be surprised? We shouldn't be, because it simply means they dropped off the scene. You know, you know what the word uh, divorce is? You know what it comes from, the Greek word? It starts out with a word that almost becomes the word apostatize. 
people apostatize in their marriage relationship. It divides them. It, it, it separates them. They, in effect, apostatize. They don't believe what they did believe because they did believe they loved their spouse and they wanted to commit them and be there with them the rest of their lives, but they apostatize. Not the same word as apostatize, but it's a word that's similar or, in a, as we call it, a cousin. In this passage of Scripture, interesting that Jeremiah makes the statement in Jeremiah chapter 29, 13 that applies here, and that is he says in that passage, 29, 13, ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. It simply would tell us that uh, God is not interested in anybody's half-heartedness. Half-heartedness. I'm not interested in our church choir singing half-heartedly. I just soon they not sing. If you're not going to sing with your whole heart, sit it out. Sit it out. And that goes for all of us in every call of life. You know, any pastor who doesn't put his heart into it ought to sit down and let somebody else preach. A Sunday school teacher who doesn't give it their heart ought to sit down and let somebody else do it. Usher of our church, if you're not going to give your heart to do it and do it as a passionate usher, sit it out. Because everything you do reflects on who you say you've trusted as your Savior, your Lord, guide, and shepherd of your life. And let me tell you something. He never did anything half-heartedly. And he does not deserve half-heartedness in any part of our relationship with him. So in this particular case... An issue in a verse of Scripture. Let me take you this. There's a conflict. And look, if you were from where you are in Luke 19, look over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Well, let me just take one verse because I could read a lot in Romans. But let me take one verse. It's chapter 3 of Romans verse 11. In Romans chapter 3, and we've just been talking about Zacchaeus seeking to see Jesus. And then when verse number 10 talks about the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And when you have a seeking sinner and a seeking Savior, you're going to have a meeting. And they did meet, and Zacchaeus' life was changed. And then uh, with Jeremiah's statement in chapter 29, You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. There's one thing you need to remember in that. Romans chapter number 3 says in verse 11, There is none that understandeth, and there is none that seeketh after God. Now, any person born into this world, born once, does not go around seeking God. Or this Bible verse is heresy. So it's either true or it's false. That nobody, but nobody, seeks to know God. Nobody does. And anybody who's just been born again or born once and hasn't been born again and tells you they seek God, uh, they're lying through their teeth. They're not telling you the truth. Because it's either they're lying or God is lying who said, nobody seeks me. Nobody seeks me. When you're born into this world, there's one thing we seek. And his personal satisfaction. That my needs are met, my interests are procured, and I'm walking in tall cotton. That's what's important to every person born in the world. 
the Bible says that uh, on the basis of that, then, there's something that has to happen uniquely in order for anybody, even a person like Zacchaeus, to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible says he came seeking the Lord Jesus, that is, seeking to see him. Uh, that's uh, an interesting thing because Romans 3.11, this verse that none that seeketh after God is what mankind is by birth. And that means everybody in this room was born not seeking God. And what has to happen is for that to change is God in his mercy has to do something to give you light that makes you conscious of your need and gets you then to begin to seek after God and to have some kind of relationship with him because something is not right. Every person, get this carefully, every person will eventually meet God. Every person will. They'll meet God. You'll either meet him now, here, on planet Earth, or you'll meet him at the great white throne judgment, but you will meet him. There is no doubt about that. Let me show you. Look if you would. We don't read Revelation very often anymore about the judgment of God, but in chapter 20, in uh, verse number 11, it says this. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And by the way, the ideal of according to works is the aspect of which proves what you believe if you say you're a christian then your works will prove that james teaches it very clearly you're not saved by works but your works prove to people that you have been saved so when the books are open according to those books it's going to tell what you did it's going to tell what you're like how you operated how you function and the, the god of the universe will be able to look at the books and say as i see exactly what your works are and he's going to say, I'm sorry, but it does not testify that you're one of mine. So the verse continues, verse number um, 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them. The death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Verse 14, and the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In verse number 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Beloved sinners uh, have to meet God, and the problem with that is that they're not fit to meet him. And the word fit means fashion. They're not, they're not clothed properly. It'd be like going into a king's uh, throne room. You have to be properly fitted to go in there. And in the case with these sinners here, to meet God, they do not have what it takes. And only, only the Lord himself can provide us and with what it's going to take. And by the way, he's actually established the means by which we can get this and be provided. Let me read it to you before we close. Look at uh, Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter number 10. Romans chapter 10. And look, if you would, at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 10, 
verses 1 through 5 say this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved. By the way, that would be our prayer for every person in this room who's not a believer, who has not placed their faith in the finished work of Christ, for all of our family, for all of our friends and our loved ones, our neighbors. Uh, This would be true for all of us if we have a heart the way we should for the salvation of mankind. Verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live in them. First off, to understand here, he's talking about Israel. The application can be made on the basis of what's true about them. They were lost and undone away from God. And Paul's prayer for Israel is they would be saved. In verse number 2, it admits, Paul does, that these people have a religious zeal. They're, They're passionate about their religion. They just aren't going to heaven when they die. So something has to change. And the prospect of changing a Jewish person who's believed this all their life, it's like a person who is a cultured uh, uh, a religious person. They've been born into a religion that, that does not teach the whole counsel of God, and they were born into it, and consequently, they just cannot believe there's another way. Jews said, wait a minute. It, this, we, we have a zeal of God. I mean, we just strive to honor God by our life, do everything that's right, keep the law in the whole ten yards. Look at verse number 2, or verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. I want you to think of righteousness here as a garment. <coughs> I want you to think of it in terms that there is a, a garment that God requires for you to get into heaven. And we're going to call the garment righteousness. And in order for you to get into heaven, you have to be clothed in righteousness. And these Jews were not clothed in righteousness. They were clothed with the zeal of God, you know, a passionate religious kind of thing. I mean, they may have prayed three times a day. They may have gone to the synagogue every time it was open. They may have gone to morning prayer. They may have gone to her confession. They may have gone to all kinds of stuff. But God says their zeal was useless because it wasn't his righteousness. And so what he says was, everybody's got to have the garment of righteousness. You're going to get into my heaven. You'll go according to my dress code. And you have to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. So when you stand before me, I'm not going to even see you. Oh, I know your name's written in this book, and I know that, but I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to look at your clothing. What's your clothes? How you're clothed? What it is you're wearing when you stand before me? And I say to you that Paul the Apostle says to these Jewish people, the clothing that you have chosen, verse number 3, for being they being ignorant of God's clothing, his, his fitting them for this contact with God, he says, and going about to establish their own clothing. That's what verse 3 is saying. Their own righteousness have not submitted themselves 
under the righteousness of God. It's just like this. God said, here's the clothes you have to go and have to wear in order to be approved to get into heaven. You have to have my righteousness, my clothing that I provided in Christ. And if you come before me and you don't have this clothing, you're not going to get into heaven. I don't care how zealous you are. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many times a week you go to church. I don't care how many times a week you go to any kind of religious activity. You can have a zeal of God, but not according to the knowledge that God has given in his revelation. And that's the problem. Look, you may be a religious person. You may be sitting here and say, look, Doc, you, you don't understand. I am really religious. I never miss a service. I never... That's not the issue here. The issue is, what is it that you're claiming to be accepted before God Almighty? That's the issue on the table. Uh, you may be better than I am. You probably are. There's probably nobody in this room who is as bad as I am. But I'm not going to heaven because I'm bad or I'm good. I'm going to heaven because I'm dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And by the way, that's the only people who get there. And so in this country, we have this tendency to get off on religious tendons and tendons and get involved in religious kind of activities, and we get intoxicated with it. And ultimately, we're going to find out in America that we're going to end up short because we don't have the right clothing. There's a story in the New Testament. I close with this. There's a story in the New Testament where they were having a, a wedding. And the fact of the matter is, in order to get into the wedding, you had to have wedding garments. Some guy slipped in, and evidently they uh, caught him and said, hey, 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 you don't have the wedding garments. And provision had to be made by the people who were putting on the wedding in order for this guy to get to remain there. And the assumption would be in customs of the land, if you follow that along with what the scriptures say, it would imply that there was a way and a means whereby this guy would have been provided with what he did not have. Now look, that may work well in the wedding story, but it won't work well when you die. When you die, there is not going to be a place between here and there that you get off and make a deal with God and say, look, I did make some mistakes down there. I didn't take your righteousness as seriously as it was. I regret that. I'm sorry about that, but I do want to get into heaven. You'll forgive me, but God is merciful, but he's also just. And he's going to say, I told you right in my word exactly what I expected, and I'm not hedging on one thing about God is he is always faithful to his word. Always. 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 No exceptions and no exclusions. He's always faithful to his word. And the moment that he ceases to be that, he ceases to be God. He ceases that's what's writing him. So it's not a matter of you or me coming along and trying to persuade him to change his mind or change his law or change his rule or change his dress code about this righteousness thing. He's going to get it done, and I'm not going to get it done. And that's why Paul uses the language he does in the verse. Notice again, verse number 3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness 
and going about to establish their own righteousness, now watch the phrase, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Most people who won't go to heaven are not not going there by accident. You know what I said? Most people who are not going to heaven are not going not not going to heaven because of that. They're not going because they, they didn't understand, they were somehow foggy on the whole thing. They're not going because they're flat out rebellious against what God has provided and they will not accept it. And they want to go their way and they want to do their thing. And they're just not bending and they're not bound. May I say to you, that in itself testifies to a lack of the righteousness of God. Because one of the first things that it does of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is it humbles us. It humbles us. You can't preach as long on the grace of God as we have in the Sunday morning services around here without getting to understand, really, in God's eyes, we're really nothing. We're only something in Christ who saved us and is changing us and molding us and making us into what we ought to be. But in and of ourselves, we're nothing. And we ought to know that better than anybody else in the world because whatever we are to God be the glory and this whole truth built around this premise about Zacchaeus and uh, next week we go a little deeper into his story but the fact of the matter is it's important tonight before we leave here that you check your own heart you be very honest has there ever been a time in your life where you came to realize according to the biblical standard that you were indeed a sinner. God does not save anybody who is not first a sinner. And most people do not want that title. While we were yet sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. If you're not a sinner, you'd say that verse in you. So you have to be classified as a sinner. You have to be dressed as one in the righteousness of Christ. And when that's true, then you get into heaven on the basis of what Christ has done for you. And he stands certifying you as one of his. When you try to get in by your lonesome, he just pulls up your card, so to speak, and checks your works and says, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. You were religious on Saturday or on Sunday, but you sure weren't religious Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Whatever it was you got didn't change your life. It just changed the weekends. If you're a weekend Christian, something bad wrong. Because salvation is a new birth into a new family to create a new person. So Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I submit to you that that's what's going to be in this book that is going to reflect our works. What we do is reflecting of what we are. And you are what you are when you're alone, when nobody in the world is watching, but God is watching. And God judges, and I'm confident God has an angel or someone who describes everything that he needs to write in the book, and it's all going to be right there. Not that God needs to write down anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything and knows everything that has been, is, or will be. But for some reason, he's put it in books, Revelation 20 says. 
And one day you and I will face that. We will face who we really are judged by what we do. And I say to you that uh, it's a good time to start now. Take a good look at your heart and just ask yourself a simple question. Now, has there ever been a time when I realized I really was a lost sinner according to God's standard and I bowed my heart in absolute repentance and said something like the publican said that's recorded in Luke's gospel, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake. I say to you, if you uh, fit into that category, there's no better place for you to take care of that matter than right here right now bow with me please our father in heaven we come to the service this evening with a a realization and a deep appreciation for the great grace wherein you've loved us and cared for us and met our needs and dealt with us in ways that uh, are past our wisdom we just don't understand your kindnesses your graciousness we just don't understand all that but we are extremely grateful this evening our father for what you've written in your word, the revelation that you set before us to teach us and to tell us what uh, it is that you expect from us and what it is, Father, that we're going to face one day as we stand before you. So tonight I ask you to help us as individual believers that we may live like we have a relationship with you. For people here who have never had a personal relationship established, never been born again, I pray for them tonight. My heart goes out to them because as they are, I have been, and I know what it is to be on that side of the aisle. I know what it is to be lost and be wrestling with that idea. Even as a young boy, a very young boy, I can remember being and feeling very religious that I went to church all the time, and I believed in prayer, and I probably prayed my own prayers at meals and bedtime, and I did all those things. But I remember the time when my heart was smitten, convicted of my sin, that I was born a sinner. And that I would not be going to heaven apart from that sin being pardoned and forgiven. And I can remember the evening in a revival service when my Sunday school teacher opened the scriptures and showed me why my own heart was under the conviction of the preaching I'd heard. And my life was changed when I confessed I was a sinner. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation and rested in him from that moment until this one. And now I can be assured of heaven because I have followed the directions that are set forth very clearly in the Word of God. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I'm not a good person. I am a person in Christ. And that's what makes the difference. So I pray tonight that you'll draw us to yourself on the basis of the authority of your Word. If there's a man, woman, boy, or girl in this building who is not saved by the standard of the Scripture... I pray at this very moment that you'll bring great conviction to them through your word, by your spirit, and draw them to yourself in salvation. I pray you'll do your work and trust we've done ours acceptably to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.